0: Good evening! It is November. Holy shit, it's not November. It's December. December 2nd, 2018. We are in the final month of the year, and I'm kind of freaking out about it, because I'm going to be 28 in about a month, and I don't really want to be that old, and being in the situation I'm in. (laughs) So, we're going to try to grow the fuck up, right? Ah. Anyways, that was weird. Uh, Anyways, today we have on Arthur Diamato. Arthur, I'm very excited for this, is a uh, strength and conditioning specialist. Uh, He is a physiologist and, uh, or an exercise physiologist and a canoe instructor. A very smart guy. I've known him for the better part of a decade now, which is crazy. Um, I've known him since I was probably like 20 years old. He was actually one of my brother's friends in college, which is how we met up. Uh, initially, but I've always been fascinated by Arthur because he's uh, a very, very smart guy and knows his shit a lot when it comes to exercise physiology, strength and conditioning, and, and canoeing, man. He's uh, he's a little mad scientist. I know he's living in the Fox Valley right now. I believe his gym is in Appleton. We'll find out more via during the podcast, but... You know, I'm, I'm excited. It's, it's a change up, so it's not uh, the normal comedy or comedian or MMA fighter one, but I kind of want that's what I wanted to do initially. I wanted to branch out and have uh, lots of different types of interesting people on here. And, you know, myself, I've been a personal trainer for about seven years now um, as my day job. And so I've always been interested in, in learning more about this sort of thing. So hopefully some of you are too. And if not, then don't listen, I guess. But, uh, you should have listened because this guy is a very, very interesting guy and you got to train your brain, you know, and train your body because it's the one vehicle you have for the rest of your life. So, without further ado, give it up for Arthur Diamato. Arthur, thank you, man. Thanks for coming on.
1: Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah. Um... um- is this loud enough? Do I need to be projecting more? No, it should be room? good. You can see the, uh, uh, what's that called? The, the stuff right there. Yeah, <laughs> the, the audio waves. Yeah, yeah, so the bigger those are, the the louder we are. So Let's see if it catches my, uh, cracking in my mouth. Oh, Yeah, yeah, I know. It's pretty it's, good. It's,
0: it's pretty good, yeah. I got the, um, what's that called? I forget what the name of the microphone is called. The Yeti. I got the, uh, oh. the Yeti ready to rock uh, for the New Year's, but I think... It was a gift from quote-unquote winky-wink Santa, mm-hmm. uh, so I have to wait until Christmas. All right. <laughs> 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 that makes sense. So we're going to do the, do the old-school phone. Dude, thanks for coming by, man. I appreciate it. I've known you for a while now. Um... I was just talking in the intro, my brother introduced us mm-hmm. better part of a decade ago now, which is kind of scary, you know, it was about <laughs> six or seven years that, ago. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, which um, just makes uh, me feel old as shit now when I can say that. <laughs> it makes you feel old, how do you
1: think I feel? I'm oh, old there, how old are you? How I'm your brother's age, okay. so I'm 28, Okay. and you came over to our place, it would have been like our third year at school, that was the first year UW Oshkosh lets its... Um, Students live off campus, so the first two oh, years it's mandatory that you, you, you got to live, live on campus, campus for, in the dorms for the first two years reduces the cost for those for the for the dormitories and everything. Then you can move off campus. And for for people who are listening, um, Forrest is Avery's older brother. Yeah. He lived with me, and he and I were really good friends in college. We were playing bands together, we did yeah. clubs together, um, and that's how I met Avery. And I don't think you had picked up MMA or comedy when I knew you at Oshkosh. No, I was just personal trainer. <laughs> okay. And when I was in Oshkosh, um, for the most part, I spent, I got most of my exercise when I was there um, at the Rock Walls that were on campus. Oh, and then man. also uh, being the president of the boxing club. So I would spend 10 That's hours right, a week dude. boxing and teaching people how to box and at the same time, I was pursuing an undergraduate degree, yeah, dual majoring in philosophy and kinesiology. And then That's after... Yeah, it's, it's, one pays the bills and one does not. I'll let you one guess pays which the one. bills and one feeds the brain. Exactly. <laughs> well, they both feed the brain. But. And then after I left undergrad, um, I went to UW-Milwaukee and earned a master's in kinesiology right here in town. And my specialty is neuromechanics. Which is a combination of neuroscience and biomechanics, and kind of the broad, the, the specialized focus of that discipline is how does the brain learn most efficiently? So we're the, the lab I was working in for Dr. Sun Wong with, is specialized in what's called lateral dominance, hemispheric dominance, where why is your left hand your dominant hand or your right hand dominant? And his working hypothesis in that lab is that each limb and potentially each side of your brain is specialized for different aspects of a movement. So, for instance, um, if you're right-hand dominant, the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and vice versa. So your dominant side is better for, say, uh, accuracy, endpoint accuracy. The other side would be for... Um, uh, for, like, angular velocity. And so we would use biomechanics. Did you to break make that down Barney style for yeah. people that don't understand? So What's essentially we would use biomechanics, the physics, to try and make inferences about the brain. Okay. And so the way that it would work in a lab setting is we'd have people come in. They sit in this big robotic exoskeleton deal that uh, is kind of a video game. And basically their arms are up in a sled, and they play in the most boring video games you could possibly imagine where okay. they're They've got a little cursor that represents their finger and they're reaching for targets. And then using that machine, we manipulate what's going on either by moving the dot that represents their finger without telling them so that they don't line up. Oh. Or we put a little force field on it so that it moves their arm and they don't. it's too small for them to realize it consciously. No one ever really gets it. But now that I just gave the game away, everybody's going to know. <laughs> <Wow>. going in. <laughs> all, th-
0: all three people who are studying kinesiology listen to the podcast. No, they're like, I mean, it's, they're it's, like shut the fuck <laughs> up. That's my, that's, my, that's my bread and butter right there, Jeez, bro. So what, did, what got you into this
1: initially, though? This is great. Um, being a scholar on a budget, and in large part, because um, UW-Milwaukee's got a great kinesiology program, and because it's in-state, it was cheaper for me to go there. Um, What got me into kinesiology in the first place in undergrad was through philosophy. So I would take courses on like the mind-body problem, like what's the relationship between your mind and your body, are you just a brain, stuff like that. And then also on certain ethics courses and what I realized was that um, if you're looking at a mind-body problem and you're only talking about the mind and you don't know anything about the body... Yeah, How's that going to get you there? And then also just being, I would say, mildly athletic in trying to pursue rock climbing and trying to do um, other outdoor wilderness activities. Like I was a guide backpacking and sea kayaking. And then coming back and teaching the boxing club, I wanted to know what would make me and the guys I was working with better, what would reduce our injury risk. And so that has continued um, throughout My career where, um, just a couple weeks ago, I got to give a lecture at the Midwest Risk Management Symposium on physical preparedness for wilderness context, where we were going through, and I was talking about what are the specific risks of injury for people in the wilderness, how do you prepare for them, um, what are some of the changing demographic problems that you can see coming down the pipeline. Yeah. Um, And then, a couple years ago, I got to give a lecture at Canucopia, which is a bid big, um, um, it's actually the world's largest paddle sport expo, and it happens in Madison every year. My dad would take us there every year because he's it a huge cool? kayaker, dude. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's so good. And so that one was specifically geared towards paddle sports. So it was like one of the injury risks for people that are paddling, uh, at you know, whitewater kayakers, and then people that, that are doing sprints and marathons, um, and I've been trying... Through being a wilderness guide, I've led trips that are as long as 45 days backpacking Whoa. in Alaska, and I've led sea kayaking trips in Lake Huron that were two weeks in length, and that, and, you know... Dude, so back up, real quick. Yeah. 45 days in the
0: wild. That's uh-huh. fucking cool. I did a Canuck once, 30 days. Um,
1: Same place, Manitouish. Okay, yeah. That's oh, what okay. I let it yeah,
0: George, Okay. Mm-hmm. That's sweet, man. Um So, I didn't realize that. That's cool. Um Did you... G- What's the 45 days in the wild, dude? That's as a leader when you're in charge of all these people, because I was like, uh, what 15, 14, I think, when I did it. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just kind of like just going along on the journey, but as a
1: instructor, like that's a lot of fucking responsibility. Dude. It is, and there's a lot of variation between instructors at even the same location. And so, um, I was, I was very meticulous in making sure that we had. Um, a, uh, a lesson program going on every every third day, there'd be a kid giving a lecture. And I was trying to make sure that everybody had lectures that were science-based, um, anthropology-based for the area. So mm-hmm. that, you know, as it's not just supposed to be a trip where people go out and they just have fun out in the woods. You're learning. <laughs> you're learning at the same time. What oh, age range was this group of guys. So they was, were they were all 17, and I had okay. one co-leader. And um, how who? old are you? I would have been 25 wow. when, I, when I got this trip. And that was the last big trip that I led. Mm-hmm. And I led lots of other smaller trips much more closely because I helped at UW-Milwaukee start up their outdoor recreation program oh, really? called Outdoor Pursuits. And through them, I would do cross-country skiing and rock climbing and whitewater kayaking. And so, um, generally speaking, in outdoor recreation, there's a big divide between kind of like what you call like soft skills and interpersonal skills and the sports-specific training. So, it's actually very similar to... The changes that are starting to happen in MMA, which is a good segue with strength and conditioning. You You So I'm sure you've seen in the last couple of years how you know sports science has basically infiltrated MMA, right and it's really taking off. Whereas even a, even five years ago, and in some pockets today, you know there's still people are are very resistant to the idea of even doing weight training how much is enough, what kinds of exercises should we be doing. There's, uh, unfortunately, a lot of gimmicks that are out there yeah. that p- take a lot of people in or people are do uh, a lot of people are training in such a way that they're being counterproductive okay. where um, they'll do an exercise even on the same day that cancels out the effects of the exercise they did previously in the same day. Can you give me uh, an example? A great example is that um, in exercise um, physiology, we know of something called an interference effect. So if you're mixing and matching different um, rep ranges and different resi- and different intensities, you will either favor endurance training or you will favor strength training. And depending on how you mix them and match them, you can blunt the effects of either one. And so the way you would think about it is that when you do strength and endurance training, there are always central adaptations for strength and endurance training, things that are happening to the brain, the spinal cord, your heart, lungs. And then there are peripheral changes that are happening to the body where you're looking at changes in the stiffness of tendons or the density of your capillaries in the muscle or you're looking at the density of mitochondria in the muscle or you're looking at the the actual size of muscle. And if you were to say do... Uh, if you are to do a, a program where you're picking, um, if you're doing a cardio that's at greater than 90% of your VO2 max, or your 90% of your heart rate, that is generally going to be focusing on central adaptations. Okay. And if you're doing strength and resistance training, that's six repetitions or lower. Usually, you're working at an intensity range that's also at going to be affecting you centrally more than is peripherally. But endurance and strength kind of exist on a spectrum that are opposite of one another. So if you're doing both, if you're doing types of strength and endurance exercise that affect the central nervous system primarily, they're counteracting each other. And so in an ideal training program, you would want to pick either endurance training or strength training. That will be one part peripheral adaptations to the muscle and then one that would be central adaptations to the brain and the spinal cord and the heart and lungs. And actually, that was, uh, that's one of the things I got in my notes here that I was going to yeah. hit a little bit later when we can get into more detail with. Um, but uh, I'm sure you see a lot of things that are going on with some of the guys that you train with. Is there? Can you give me an example of maybe something that you've seen with the positives of strength uh, training, or some of the negligence, uh, I would actually if you could give me both, that'd be great. So
0: yeah, I mean, there's I'm not gonna say names, but uh, sure. you know, just like there's people that are some of the most talented people in the gym, but then they get burnt out through the training camps and just the grind of getting beat up. You're getting beat up every yeah. day, and if all you're doing is wrestling and jujitsu, kickboxing every day. You know, your body's never going to, and you're doing it twice a day, and you're not Mm -hmm. doing any sort of strength training, your body's going to fry out, you know, and like with me, myself, I'll just give an example. I did, and I'm an idiot for doing this, but, because I'm a personal trainer, Mm -hmm. um, but like in my, one of my fights, I didn't do any strength and conditioning. I was completely focused on just trying to get technical, 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 which Mm -hmm. has its place, obviously. It's probably the most important part of fighting, um... But my body, my joints, everything hurt. Everything hurt, and I couldn't recover. And then when it came fight day, my body was a shot. Mm-hmm. Like, my body had gone through a training camp, and I had done zero, zero preparation to make myself heal, I guess. And, make yeah. myself, uh, and so I got my ass whooped in my underwear in front of all my friends and family. <laughs> my dad drove three hours down to just watch me get beat up for 15 minutes, you know? And, uh, but then there's people, there's people like, uh, we were talking about before the podcast that a lot of these guys over at Pure Vita are doing this, um, speed of sport, uh, tra- strength and conditioning, okay. which is like this Nick Curson guy who trains like a lot of guys like, uh, Jake Ellenberger, Javier Dos Anos, um, a million, a bunch of, a bunch of other cats, Joe Schilling, yeah. uh, a bunch of other really high level fighters that, um, Basically, works from the quickness of the foot all the way up, builds a lot of like the quick twitch muscle fibers in the lower body, and doesn't really do any sort of isolated exercises no curls, no, you know, bench press. Uh, I mean, they'll do plyo press, stuff like that, a lot of explosive exercises. And these guys have the quickest recovery time, the quick, like the best, some of the best cardio I've seen, just like built for fighting. And some of the exercises you watch, you'll be like, what the fuck is this? Uh But then you'll. Like you'll see how it helps on fight day, and you know I'm not I'm not the most technical trainer in the world. I'm a good I have a good personality with people. I'm good at relationship building. Yeah. Most of my people are Gen Pop, which is why I'm really excited to have you on because I love picking people's brains who are a lot smarter than me. You know, and uh, I wouldn't say that. Well, I got you, lucky. You have it. You you can retain knowledge a little bit. You know, you can you can. I uh, made
1: myself a little PowerPoint. So yeah, you have a PowerPoint. <laughs> so I guess. Yeah, you got a screen right <laughs> in front of you. I guess that's true. But um. You know, I, I've always been fascinated, but I don't know if I answered your question with that. That's uh... No, that's actually really good in, in two ways. So the one thing that you see a lot of people doing that gets them injured is that um, it's high volume the entire training camp and maybe not ever having a tapering period. Or yeah. maybe that they start high volume and they, you know, it either increases or decreases. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just always... 12 hours a week, every week, same intensity, and it never varies. So lack of variation could be a risk factor. And then the other thing is um, on on the flip side is that some of the the good things that we're looking at is that we're starting to see athletes seek out strength and conditioning coaches in their areas Mm -hmm. or that strength and conditioning coaches are finally able to get in and actually talk to people in their area. So I'm up in Appleton right now, and I'm just having a hard time getting people to even, you know, I invite fighters to come to our facility just to give it a shot, and I want to sure. help and build up the team. I'm willing to give them huge discounts. What gym are you at? I'm at Limitless Elite Gym, and so it's a gym that's owned by a good friend of mine who's in a, a different band than the one I was in with oh, my brother. He yeah. <laughs> was the other drummer. Gotcha. <laughs> and he's actually uh, he's a, he's a world-class powerlifter. Oh. He is... He t- came back from Worlds just a couple weeks ago, into fifth in the 120 kilogram weight class. So uh, what, he used quarter, that, um, uh, yeah. So he there. took that momentum and used that to help start a gym, and I'm basically the second employee wow. that's there. It's that's like cool, he, me, and his immediate family. That's about it. And so the gym's starting to pick up now that the holidays. I've seen the pictures uh, on your Instagram. It looks like a that's very nice right. it. facility. It's awesome. It's a really good facility. And we've got um, a lot of unique things that other gyms just don't have in the area in terms of the quality of the equipment because we have a lot of it custom made for us, and then just types of equipment. So we have, um, for instance, sleds, yokes, battle ropes, logs for farmers' walks, and for other types of strongman training. We've got uh, competition grade power racks and bench press racks and stuff like that um heavy duty platforms um for a lot of different like deadlift or olympic liftings variations and that's just we're very very happy with what we have in the space that we've got because it's oh, yeah. ten thousand square feet and we've wow. got room to expand into two other buildings on the property eventually yeah. um Uh, so that, that's where I am right now. And, you know, I send out emails to some of the gyms in the area and I say, you know, it's not like I'm going to steal someone's person. I I can't steal an athlete from them. There's not going to come to me to learn Muay Thai. Right. And they might come to me to to maybe learn boxing, but it's been several years since I was a dedicated coach. Um, but you, I still get the feeling that a lot of, a lot of coaches feel that, you know, if someone comes in to say, maybe I can help with strength and conditioning, or maybe I can help with Muay Thai, or maybe I can help with Jiu-Jitsu, um, it, not necessarily in the tactical aspects, but even just, like, um, because of my neuromechanics background, I can, there's lots of ways that you can improve, say, the order of practice, like what's going on within a practice so that people learn the moves faster. Right um well, everything's it, connected it's silly it's mm-hmm. like it's like just because you get your oil
0: changed in your car doesn't mean you don't have to get your mm-hmm. transmission flushed every once in a while all these things yeah put together to make the vehicle
1: run and i think we'll, we can circle back to this a little bit later but you know i'm so happy to see that the value of strength and conditioning is starting to make its way
0: into the
1: sport it's a little bit more
0: prevalent and uh these bigger cities, and I know I'm from the Fox Valley, well, you know, yep. like I, you know, and, you know, there are some meathead gyms, no disrespect, but there's some, some older, I mean, you know, there's some, some gyms that like are not quite up to the times, and that's not, right. that's okay, that's alright, but on record, on the podcast, Alex Brockway, hit him up. You listen to every episode, I know you do. Hit this guy up, he'll help you. All right. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll reach out to a couple of guys, cause I know, I know you know your shit, and like, uh, yeah. you know, there are, there are guys that, that can definitely benefit from you that are, cool. like, making a living fighting you, and you might as well. I mean, I, it never made sense to me, yet. like, why you would want to just have, not, kind of half ass
1: you know, sure. certain aspects of it, because this is a game you don't want to get second place in. Yeah. You know? And so what I want to do over the course of the uh, the rest of the podcast is a couple of things I want to go through. Um, where is it that athletes are getting injured? How are they getting injured? What are steps that can be taken either by them or by their coaches sure. to reduce those injury, the likelihood of injury, and then we'll look at different. We'll hopefully get through a couple of different ways that we can improve performance and not just focus on on injuries. The reason I want to start by focusing on injury though is because if you never get to the match, you never win. Right and. So one of my biggest goals working with any client from any different sporting background is that injury prevention is the number one thing. Um, The biggest predictor for athletic success across all sports is time practicing. Um, Because you simply learn more, um, and then if you injure a bone, skin, tendons, it's then easier to injure the second or third time around. And you probably see with several of the pro athletes in our area that they are now just injury prone over and over and over again. The same joint maybe. Ankles sure. maybe get injured yeah. a lot. And if I had to give you three spots for where athletes can get injured, either drilling, sparring, or in competition, where do you think it is most likely that you see athletic injuries in MMA? in practice, all the time. In wrestling, sports. wrestling, mostly. Sparring specifically. So sparring is the number one spot for athletes to get injured. If you take a look at all the – uh, there's a couple of studies that have been published on it. If you look at all the athletic injuries in MMA, uh, sparring, is, sparring leads it at roughly half of all injuries. Yeah. Competition comes close second sure. with about 20% uh, – so with, with, with um, about another third – how of many of, of those injuries. injuries have been pre-existing that just... That manifest there. That manifest And then get diagnosed. Like, your your Whatever. You're just an yeah. example of, like, your
0: ACLs or MCLs just barely hanging on. Just barely hanging on. And then you just get kicked just really fucking hard. Yeah. From all those kicks you took in practice, so it's barely there. But then that one kick in the competition, and then it snaps, you know? Yeah. Like
1: We don't know for sure, um, unfortunately. Because uh, it, it's almost impossible to run that kind right. uh, of research right now. But what we do know is that like, e- even coming in at second place, at, at most an amateur fighter is going to have 15 minutes in the cage. And nine perhaps, in Wisconsin. Uh, nine in Wisconsin? Yeah, three
0: okay. three-minute three, three rounds. Oh, okay. For
1: amateurs. Um, and I believe that's, that's the same even for professional kickboxing still in yeah, a exactly couple of different organizations. And... Nine minutes, some places 15, some different sports, it might be as long as 30 minutes. But on game day, you know, that's that's still a lot of spots where you're going to get injured. But the lowest place where you're going to see injuries in practice is going to be drilling. Yeah. And so my recommendation for coaches and for athletes is, as of right now, um, it's, there's a lot of gyms that spend probably too much time doing sparring, especially after someone's taken a camp, started a camp. Yeah. My recommendation for a lot of people is that once you start a fight camp, drop the sparring down by a lot. Because now, you, you know that that's the most, that, you know, do sparring more heavily before you know that you're going to take a fight. But once you start getting ready for that fight, it's probably safer for you to start doing drilling. Yeah. At least in terms of percentages. Sure. And you can still spar and you can do it safely. So the, now, I agree with the, you, but just to play devil's advocate. Sure. Here, um, just so we can have a
0: podcast yeah Yeah, because
1: we're disagreeing with each other i was was listening to uh your conversation with biddle and i uh, you know i totally see why a lot of people are coming with sparring yeah and i I want you to you know give me give me the best reason for why you want to spar
0: to get comfortable fighting
1: Mm -hmm. because uh, whether
0: you like it or not when it comes fight day if you're not prepared to fight and you don't know what it's like to really get hit Mm -hmm. and like they're not they're not going anywhere they're just gonna keep hitting you you know you're not worried like you're not used to the pressure like that fast wrestling pace like oh he's taking you down now he's trying to get to side control now he's elbowing you in the face now you're up against the cage you gotta scoot back up against the cage you gotta climb 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 like you're fucking drowning or else this guy's gonna elbow you into oblivion if you're not like used to that pace like a lot of people will wilt Mm -hmm. you know like mentally and uh so I guess what would be one of your recommendations is from my uh I guess to to stay the course long term. Because yeah. uh you know, like I, I agree with you, but I also agree, you know, with Mike's philosophy is like you gotta be tough to do this shit. Yeah. And like uh but you gotta be tough but smart as well. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. And so what I would what I would say is that if your coach and you think that you, I would definitely have uh, athletes do sparring before you're willing to sign them up for a fight. You know, if you don't think that they're going to be able to hold up to the pressure in the cage, sure. it's probably not safe to send them there in the first place, and you might want them to hold off for a while. But That's not always up to you as a coach if they want to fight. That's yeah. true. That's true. But one of the big challenges is that even if you're having people spar, and they're doing very heavy sparring. Sparring sessions are, are random in the sense that you can't predict what's going to happen beforehand. Yeah. And I would like to use the analogy with with musicians in that um, you can build drills that have varying levels of complexity. So if you, for instance, so a drill doesn't have to be doing the same three punch combination followed by a kick or the same takedown defense ten times in a row. Sure. What you could have are Restricted sparring, restricted sparring rules, right? Sure. Where you are building up the level of the intensity of the sparring exchange. Maybe it's a very, very hard one minute takedown defense practice, and it's just takedown defense. Sure. And never, and that you know exactly what someone's going to be working on for that one minute. Um, but the challenge is that if you are just throwing people to the wolves, and they're sparring and sparring and sparring and sparring. And sparring They don't necessarily have a goal that they're working towards besides survival when they're doing the sparring. Yeah. You might give them a couple of of tips before they get into the ring to spar, but by having drills that they're actually working on, it's the same as a musician running through scales before they get up on stage and then perform the piece. So jazz improvisation, um, you know, they have a chord sheet or a chord chart that they're following along, and it doesn't tell them every note that they have to play. But they've performed those arpeggios and those scales and those phrasings and licks over and over and over in practice, and now they can pull them out at will once they're on stage. And it's not—it's not if you were to have someone just um, pre- try to perform an improvisational piece, and you're not giving them direction beforehand, or they're not practicing to use a lick in there, so. Like, uh, do you have a, a favorite guitar solo, for instance, uh, in any song of any sort?
0: Well, let's go with People Equal Shit by Slipknot, because that's the first thing
1: that came to my, to okay. my mind. <laughs> okay. Now, so a, a song like that, uh, so the guys with Slipknot, they know that they're going to be playing that solo pretty much the same way every night. Sure. Um, and that's the absolute, it, that's absolutely not what's going on in MMA or in boxing. Because you know that that other fighter is not going to be playing along in the same way that you've got the rest of a band playing along. And you can just execute rote drills. But then you can always add a little bit more. You can add another element of uncertainty into the practice sessions so so that maybe you have someone learn that solo note for note. And then you try having them do the solo a second time. But now you give them a a four-bar measure where they just have to improvise something. Along the same lines, and then maybe you extend this the area where they're going to improvise a solo and then extend it a little bit more, and maybe we'll do it in a different key and there's lots of ways that you can find analogies making sparring drills yeah. so uh, coming from my boxing background, if I throw two people into the ring and they're sparring for boxing, and I don't give them any direction um, it could be a- anything could potentially happen yeah. but if I go up to one of the guys and I tell them that you are going to be spending this three minute round focusing entirely on your defense. And the particular thing I want you to focus on with defense is your slipping. We're not focusing on catching. We're not focusing on parrying. I don't I want you to focus on the footwork. I want you to focus on your slipping the entire time. And the other guy, uh, you have three punch you have three combinations of punches. I want you to use only those or single punches. And you know you can build that up and force people to use new techniques because the likelihood of someone being so creative and so brilliant like a John Jones where they can just make something completely new in the moment is very unlikely right so you got to give them it's the, basics. the things the practice in the moments during the spars during the drills the live drills that will then transfer over
0: do you know who uh, Ben Askren is by chance oh
1: yeah okay that so guy is amazing he went on this uh UFC. Well, now he's
0: going to be in the UFCs. Yeah. MMA fighter, world champion. Uh, for folks who don't know, but he's from from Wisconsin here, mm-hmm. and he uh, has this famous interview where he went on Joe Rogan's podcast, yep. and he was talking just going ape shit about jitsu gyms across the country and MMA gyms in general. Just doing just doing random classes throughout the week. Like he'd go to do a jiu-jitsu class with them on at a gym on Monday. Yeah. And then on Tuesday, he'd go to that same jiu class and it'd just be another lesson. It wouldn't be the same move that they worked on the day before. It'd just be something random. And it like goes back to like that whole Bruce Lee quote, I don't feel, fear the man who did 10,000 moves one time. I fear the man who did one move 10,000 yeah. times because it's repetition, repetition, repetition. And putting yourself in that... Like, like Biddle, he used to do this stuff where he would have us do... You can th- throw a jab, cross hook, career kick, or cross hook, cross switch kick, or something else. Yeah, you know, and then and one person's on offense, one person's on defense, and that was awesome because you got really good at doing jab, cross career kicks, or cross hook, cross switch kicks. Exactly. And then on Friday we beat the shit out of each other. Not yeah. remember anything, <laughs> but yeah, probably lost a couple of years of
1: my life huh, off that one. But that was maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> um, I actually have. Practically the same story as Ben Askren did. I tried to take up jiu-jitsu uh, a couple of different times. And the way that my schedule works, and maybe your schedule is kind of similar, but the best time to do personal training is also the best time to take a lot of these yeah, classes. And so the, o- um, the only time that I really have opportunities to get to a lot of classes are during open rolling sessions. Okay. And I went for for a couple of months I don't feel like I learned a thing. Yeah, because you're, they're, open role, you're not. You're I couldn't learn I couldn't learn a single thing while I was there. And that's that's the extreme end of just random sparring with with no direction of what I should be doing. You're an Appleton? Um I am an Appleton. I haven't been able to take jujitsu since I've been up there because it's I chaos. I can literally take one class a week and that's a seven thirty Friday night Muay Thai class. Oh, sure. Okay. And uh so you know, if someone wants to go out to dinner, it's it completely throws me yeah. off. <laughs> oh, or there's an eight a.m. Um, Saturday morning Brazilian jiu-jitsu class. Okay. That's also kind of close by, so yeah. it's really hard for me to try and find the right times to get in and do that with people. Yeah. Um, but I want I want to get back to the yeah I'm sorry numbers. yeah we're going off on a right here. <laughs> no, no, but, but it's still worse because we're still in the same category of what's where are people getting injured and why is it important now. The types of injuries that you see most frequently in MMA, as well, you're going to see in order: tendon injuries are the most common, followed by sprains and dislocations. Um, and then the, the locations of your body that get injured the most are feet and toes, hands and fingers, and your lower body is much more likely to be injured than your upper body. And then one of the most ma- one of the biggest predictors in MMA gyms for injuries is not wearing protective equipment during sparring and during drilling. And so uh, the second thing I would recommend always is, even if you don't feel like it, wear the protective equipment. the headgear? The headgear, the gloves, the shin guards.
0: I I saw a study about a year ago saying that they uh, did um, testing with headgear on, and it Uh didn't actually take much away from the trauma. It just helped with cuts. They prevent cuts.
1: Even cuts, even help, even that can help. So, the, the kind of thing that's going on and um, so like with, not... with headgear and with gloves in general is that what you're hoping for is, is an airbag effect. Sure. And yeah. it might not be enough of an airbag effect, really, but even if it stops the cuts, that, that can help. Because if yeah, you have cuts open cut, up during a fight, it, yeah, because, you know, having cuts open up during a fight is a great way to get stopped. Yeah. And it happens to a lot of people. A lot of people. Unfortunately. Uh So, always wear the protective foot gear, always wear the protective gloves, always wear the protective helmets, and mouth guards are a huge one. Wow. A lot of people don't have fitting Look at teeth, dude. This is yeah. from mouth guards, too. And I oh, found yeah. teeth and shit. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people <laughs> just aren't, aren't properly fit. So, imagine fitted. if I didn't
0: have the mouth yeah. guard, you know or what I mean? <laughs> aren't fitting their
1: mouth guards properly is yeah. another huge one. And it's going to come up later, if we're going to talk about for injury, um, sorry, for recovery techniques. Sure. You'll be surprised by this one. And... Long-term causes of injuries for a lot of fighters um, is something that we call anterior dominance. Um, Anterior dominance refers to a specific series of tight muscles and weak and loose muscles. So the muscles, the musculature on the front of an MMA, boxers and kickboxers and judo fighters' body are almost always stronger and tighter than the muscles on your backside. And so that causes a couple of postural, what are called postural distortion syndromes. The first one um, is called kyphosis. And I know that people in the, that are listening can't see me, but you'll probably recognize it. Where if your pecs are really tight, your lats are really tight, your biceps are really tight, you'll see people start hunching over at the shoulders, and they'll start rounding and caving their shoulders in. And um, what you're looking at in that, in that posture is you can kind of think about it like they've got their hand it's this posture you assume when your hands are up and they're protecting your face you're you know you're tucking your chin down and what we find is that if we have people in that posture regardless of what sport or if this activity is a daily living they're way more likely to have impingement syndromes torn rotator cuffs and low back pain and low back pain just generally is a huge predictor for people just not coming into train or having to stop is if they low back pain which then can turn to surgeries because it can then turn into something called lordosis where if your lats are really tight your hip flexors are really tight and your hip flexors um, are muscles that attach to the front of your spine and then come down to the femur if they're really tight they pull your spine down towards your legs and they make a really excessive curve in your low back so um, a great example is Chuck Liddell. Chuck right. Liddell always was walking around with his belly sticking out. Yeah. he's He is a classic example of lordosis, of having a really, really tight hip flexor and really, really tight lats.
0: I was just wondering about that because he just fought. I was just wondering. He always said, man, he's got that belly, but he's had
1: that belly since he was a young man. So uh-huh. that's uh, funny you bring it up. I'm sorry. Continue. No, no, no. And, <laughs> which can then, he's always kind of walked pigeon-toed, and that's that's related. And so having these really tight muscles that are overly strong compared to these other ones will do a couple of different things. Um, They make you more likely to experience a couple of different injury types. Um, And then what it can also do is reduce your performance. Um, And we'll get to that a little bit more later, but just keep an eye on that. So if you have anterior dominance or you suspect you've got anterior dominance, The biggest things that you can do are get your pecs, your lats, your biceps as loose as possible, and probably your upper traps, and your hip flexors, and then you want to start strengthening the rhomboid muscles, which are between the shoulder blades and the spinal cord, your middle and lower traps, as opposed to your lats, your glutes, and your rotator cuff. Those are going to be big ones, and we'll probably come back to them pretty soon. Um, so those are the big things for injury prevention. Okay. Um, and we'll probably talk a little bit about exercise selection that people can do to kind of focus on it. Yeah. But a broad, a broad um, suggestion is that a strength training program, it you would want to pick two push two two exercises that would work those muscles, and then three exercises that would work the weaker muscles, like a two to three ratio of your pecs and lats. Compared to the rhomboids and the and your other, and those other ones that are smaller, um, that's usually a pretty good ratio. And of course, there are other variations that might be more conducive depending on a person's either style or their injury problems. So if someone isn't anterior dominant or starting to see kyphosis, it might not be a problem for them ever. So you see a lot of guys walking around at Pure Vita? Oh, yeah. Kind of yeah. like with the rounded shoulders. Yeah, forward? I mean,
0: every gym I've ever been at. Yeah, mean and I'm I'm bad at that, too. I've noticed that. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm a trainer, and I preach posture. Like, I have most of my clients now are probably in their 70s, you know? Okay. Like that age. Yep. They're. And yep. Uh, so I'm just like, hey, hey, Mike, power of posture. All right? Put your shoulders back. Yeah. <laughs> so I, <I'm> like, <laughs> I
1: would recommend next time you guys watch weigh-ins look at and see how many guys are standing up tall with their chest up and their shoulder blades down and back, as opposed to the guys that are standing with their shoulders rounded forward. The down, I mean, the thing, one reason why guys will often round their shoulders forward is because it makes their pecs look bigger <laughs> as well. So if you see a guy that's got huge pecs and they're super well defined, but their shoulders are rounded forward, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah. That's something that's gotta be fixed and you should let them know that they should take a look and fixing that. But um moving forward, not only is the goal of a, of a strength and conditioning program to be injury prevention, um, I also really wanted to focus on sport specific performance. And um, some of the things that you'll see in the research literature on MMA and combat sports in general is what you'll notice, first of all, is that there's a lot more research on individual disciplines like judo and jujitsu or karate and taekwondo and boxing yeah. than there is on MMA. So, so it's, yeah. it's a new sport. It's not necessarily that those are old, but it seems to be easier for people to make recommendations for those sports because they're more specialized. Oh, okay. I see. In, in large part. So it's easier to. So, like, I found one study where they were looking at judo compared to taekwondo and karate, and they were just looking for for difference between the types of athletes. Right. And they would look at, say, like, they could identify that karate athletes had the greatest amount of lower body power. They could move the fastest, sure. but the judo players were often had the most upper body strength. Yeah. Uh, so like they could squat the heaviest and they could bench press the heaviest, but they couldn't, they didn't have as high of a vertical jump. Sure. And so what we find is that every combat sport, no matter what your sub-discipline requires you to have a, a tremendous aerobic capacity. Or a high, very high VO2 max. Um, what we see is that a lot of grapplers, wrestlers, jiu-jitsu players, judo players, sambo, will have higher maximum strength scores for their upper body, okay. particularly on their grip strength. And we see differences in between different types of grips, whether it's a pinching style grip, or if it's like grabbing... Um, like a gable grip. Like a gable a grip. grip. So there's different. you can get different test outcomes just by looking at different types of grips. If you were looking at it in a gym, it's like the difference between pinching a plate or pinching a barbell, or if you were holding the hex, like a hex dumbbell, yeah. by the actual hex itself. Probably going yeah, so to <laughs> no, be harder. <laughs> there's all different manners of training grip that you can do while you're in the gym. Do you ever
0: do you ever see those, uh, they're called Evo grips, it's a spherical grip that you can put like on a dumbbell? Uh, or, like, on a barbell or something. It's just, like, a portable grip you can take off. Uh, Or, like, a fat grip. It's just, like, a thick I've seen fat grips. I've Uh, never
1: seen anybody buy the Evo grips. The Evo grips
0: are pretty cool. I uh, wish I had them here. I brought them to my work, like, three weeks ago. But it's just a circle... Yeah. It's just a circle that you clamp on just like a fat grip that you put on a barbell or a dumbbell, and then
1: it's a circle, and it just, like, dude, it, oh, helps, yeah. it helps my grip t- tremendously. And uh, I love them. They're, like, 20 bucks online. But. One of the easiest things you can do to really challenge your grip strength is just take a towel, yeah. wrap it around the bar, and then you don't have to buy anything extra. You just grab a towel, put it on. That's true, and man. I forgot You'd be that. able to do it just to just adjust the, the towel width and change the diameter of the bar as well. So there's all kinds of little tips and tricks I want to throw out there. Um, Other sport-specific things that you want to focus on is that uh, strikers exhibit the highest power output, generally. Upper body and lower body, if they're specific – if they're boxers, Muay Thai fighters, uh, et cetera. Neck and grip strength is a huge predictor for people coming out of the grappling sports. And then what we see is what – Kind of like a little bit more esoteric, and we're going to come back to it. I hope is abdominal stiffness. Um, so there are specific tests that will look at kind of the tensile strength of your rectus abdominis, your six-pack muscles, and they'll see that stiffness, not your ability to like do crunches, sure. is a huge predictor of force predict of force production. And so that'll come back to exercise selection, specifically related to core, and we'll talk about. It. And then lastly. Body composition is always going to be a huge thing. Sure. Um, then you're putting together your strength and conditioning program, and then if I'm working with an athlete, basically everything that's going to come together, that's going to come out of the strength training program, is going to be dictated by the amount of time that we have. It's going to be dictated <coughs> by test results, and it's going to be dictated by the strategy of the athlete. And so, um, if I know I've got a grappler. I highly doubt that in 4 to 12 weeks I'm going to make them have the same power output as a as a striker. And vice versa. Maybe if I've got more time, it can happen. But if you're an athlete and you want to do a bunch of... Um, you, you want to do tests before you start your camp. And that's for a couple of different reasons. One, to let you know where you stand, what your weak points are. Sure. Um, so that you can either focus... Double down on things that you're already good at. So if you know that you've got um, absolutely massive strength and low power, like you, know, you don't have a very good vertical jump and your strikes not going to be that great, and you don't have a lot of time, double down on your on your grappling. Or if you think you've got enough time that you really want to focus on your weak on your weak spots, or if you notice that your VO two max is not going to be high enough to last you all nine minutes, you got to hit that the hardest. So strategy is going to be dictated by the test scores. And for different types of tests that are available to you that aren't going to be cost prohibitive, you want to do about seven different tests. One, you want to try doing a test for your VO2 max, the volume of oxygen that you can consume. And you can do a lot of those tests on treadmills or on cycles. And you don't have to go to a facility where they take direct measurements of oxygen that might be too expensive to just right. go and do. You can do tests that will give you a rougher, a rough estimate of what your VO2 max is, and you want to do that. Just say on a treadmill, basically. Sure. So there's a you can find the most commercial gym or something. So the the, the the protocol that I use requires a treadmill that can hit 20 degree incline, okay. and it's um, it's called a Bruce ramp protocol. Bruce ramp. Bruce protocol. hyphen ramp. And so there's Bruce protocols, ramp protocols, and this is kind of a mix and match. And what it does is every minute the test gets slightly harder by increasing the incline, and increases the miles per hour. And what we do is we basically run you to the point where you feel like you can't go any harder and you have to quit. And based on what level you got to, I can make an estimate of how much oxygen you should have been consuming at that point.
0: So without um, giving your trade secrets. well, but uh, yeah. I mean, uh, how do you do that as a trainer
1: then? So I so if I'm do I I can do it. I, like, I mean, how you measure it? Like how I um, measure it. So yeah. uh, there's published norms essentially. So okay. um, what exercise physiologists have been able to do is they take you know a hundred people, they make them do the exact same test, and there's enough people that are uh, they've got their scores close enough together at each of those different spots that you can say, all right, if you hit I'm not going to have the numbers exact because I don't have them in front of me. But let's say you hit um, 15-degree incline and you're running at 4.2 miles per hour. I think that's one of the spots. That should be about 17 METs. Okay. All right. And then from METs, we can calculate what the VO2 max is. And And for folks who don't know, what's a MET? A MET stands for metabolic equivalent or a multiple your rest of your um, okay. your resting metabolic rate. So every human consumes three point five milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body mass per minute when they're at rest, every time you're sleeping. And so a met is just a multiple of that. So okay. two mets would be seven milliliters and so on and so forth. So we can kind of, we can get a ballpark estimate of what would be about the, the most you could do. And then there's a couple of, of heart rate formulas that you can build based off of that VO2 max that aren't just max heart rate. They're more accurate than that. Um, so after you've done your VO2 uh, – probably before your VO2 max test, you should do body composition. I, I recommend people do it with skinfold calipers and find someone that can do that as opposed to the handheld devices because they're less accurate. And for the weight cut especially, that's going to be huge. Yeah. Um, if you don't know what your body um, – if you don't know – where you are in terms of your body composition, it's, it could be absolutely devastating for a weight cut in a couple yeah. of ways. One is that you might not have enough body fat to lose to get you to the weight class that you need. Okay, like
0: I, I had a friend who uh, had to take laxatives because he couldn't cut the rest of his weight. Yeah. And he shit his pants in the elevator <laughs> on the weight of the weights. Uh, <laughs> so we had to like go find the bathroom. So he could like take the shit out of his pants. Oh man! And uh, he won the next day. Good for him. (laughs) He he lost a couple of extra pounds on the way out yeah. He came in at like one forty three and he was okay one forty five.
1: So I'm sorry. Yeah. Or you can uh, my uh, my amateur boxing match the when I went to the Golden Gloves I missed my weight by one pound and I had to fight in the next weight class where I fought a dude that cut down to one sixty five and he eat the shit out of me. Yeah. That it was, was uh, awful. That's <laughs> It was so bad. That's um, right. I mean, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so there's a couple <laughs> things going on. So that if you don't have the weight, if you don't have the body fat to lose, then you might actually have to just lose body. Um, you know, You would just have to lose muscle mass or you got to really focus on dehydration. But if you can safely cut down to the weight class, you need to be just by getting rid of excess fat, then it's so much safer for you to do changes to your diet and picking different exercise selection. Um, or if you're trying to lose weight, if you, um, if you do cardio only to get you down to the weight cut that you need, um, you'll lose roughly equal parts, body fat and muscle mass. If you do cardio and strength training to get down to the weight that you need to be, you will primarily lose body fat you are less likely to lose muscle mass and so those are just different strategies in the weight cut by themselves that you can kind of look at um, test number three lower body power can be tested either with vertical jump tests you can just use a wall for it or you can do a broad jump and you can practice you can do these kind of tests every single day And what's nice about them is they're so fast that you can just do a quick chest. Like, like you finish your warm-up, you go do a vertical jump test, best of three. And you can kind of get an estimate of whether you're overtraining or not if you start seeing that vertical jump get lower and lower and lower. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty quick to set up at home. And, you know, if, if if you're just tracking it, like, daily, and you're like, man, my vertical jump is 20 inches, 20 inches, 20 inches and it starts ramping up as the program goes on, 22 inches, 23 inches, all right, we're doing great, we're doing great, and then it starts dipping back down, you know that you've started overtraining. And that's going to be the same with the upper body power test, which uh, I recommend people do what's called the medicine ball put test. And that would be taking a medicine ball, generally Mm 10-pound medicine ball, and you're going to sit on a bench that's reclined to about 45 degrees. The medicine ball has to be on your chest, your feet are flat, and you would put, or you know, fire that ball as far as you possibly can. And then wherever that ball lands, you take that distance, and that's a, an estimate of power. And as your power gets better and better and better, oh. you should see that ball go further and further and further. And as you overtrain, you see the ball get, that Whoa. distance gets shorter. That's smart as fuck. Dude. So this is, is stuff that, that every gym should be able to do, um, you know, incredibly cheaply. And you can have a whole team run through it at the end of a warm-up and be done with that testing in five minutes, as long as people, if someone's willing to keep track of the scores, you can, I mean, it, it's great for the athletes and that's also great for the coaches because it lets them know that, Hey, our program is working and we're not overtraining our kids yeah. before they get out there or adults. And then, uh, other tests that you might need to do actually in a, in a, a regular gym might be lower body strength tests. Generally we recommend, uh, you've got more published norms for, the leg press, right. rather than you do the squat. So really? you, Yeah, there's just more publications for it. Okay. And squat is so technique-dependent sure. that you... Um, and most of the time teaching the technique. Yeah, a lot of time. Sure. Yeah, so when it's just a test, it's pretty safe to take someone through the testing protocol to find out what their one rep max is. And you can do an upper body strength test as well. Generally, it's recommended that the published norms are generally for the bench press, and I recommend people do something called the bench pull test. Exactly. And the bench pull, you see it more in the UK and in Europe. The bench pull is you need a bench that's high enough. You have a barbell below the bench. You have the athlete laying down on the bench with straight arms. They should be able to grab that bar. And then you find the way that they can pull and smack to the, the bottom of the bench. And the reason why is that there's a couple of publications that have looked at different different sports and they've looked at the ratio of bench press to bench pull. And in an ideal scenario, if you're trying to avoid that anterior dominance we talked about later, you want a one-to-one ratio, or you want a ratio that's going to favor the bench pull. Okay. Because yeah, that's, that's going to tell you whether you're overtraining the front side of your body and you can't generate the power to, to keep yourself out of the risk of impingement. Interesting. Also pretty easy to set up and pretty quick. Yeah, I've never done, very, that, very I've done that before. I've seen it. I saw it on YouTube once. I was like, I'm yeah. gonna try that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super. Any, it's it's impossible to get someone hurt, even if they're a complete novice in the right. in the weight room. And then the last thing that's that's catching on fire is functional movement screens. Okay. So functional movement screens uh, were developed by a physical therapist, and they've been used. It's, it's essentially seven different movements such as an overhead squat, stepping over a hurdle, and you assign uh, scores based on how well they're doing. It's got pretty well-set criterion. And based on the end score, it gives you an idea of how flexible and mobile someone is. And there's been at least one follow-up study with Muay Thai fighters, and I believe there's others with grapplers, where they've looked at what the total functional fitness score is. So the higher the score, the better. And then they'll track them over the course of like three months, four months, and see uh, whether it's predictive of injury. And so if you score low on that functional movement screen, you are much more likely to get injured than someone that scores high on the functional movement screen. So that's a big one to look at. So those are my seven tests. So uh, once again, body composition, preferably with skin fold calipers, uh, VO2 max tests. You can do them on treadmills. You can do them on cycles. You can do them on steps. Uh, lower body power with vertical or broad jumps, upper body power with the medicine ball put test, lower body strength with one repetition leg press, or if you feel comfortable, squat and deadlift tests, um, upper body strength with both the bench press and the bench pull tests, and then functional movement screens. So, so Matt, those f- working your way up to a one rep max, there's a couple of different things, a um,
0: couple different trains of thought, like with people warming up to the one rep max. Yep. Do you have people do like a set of ten to loosen up, a set mm-hmm. of eight, set of six and pyramid down? Do you have them do like a set of ten and then alright, now you're loosened up, now we're going to go for the one rep max. What's your
1: Yeah, so I follow the, the- Um, there are published test protocols from the National Strength and Conditioning Association and the American College of Sports Medicine. And I've got certifications from both of those organizations. And I just followed their protocol. Mm -hmm. Everybody should have gone through a really good warm-up who's going to be taking the test. uh, And one warm-up set of roughly 50% of what they think is going to be their max. Sure. And then what you're going to do is... uh, one repetition at what's per, what they think is going to be about eighty percent of their max, um, and then you have a rest period of between two and three minutes, so and then fully recover. Yep, so fully, fully recover. Yep, and then you do the next set, and you're adding anywhere between twenty and sixty pounds. Sure, to, and it's more. You can add more weight with the leg press than you can with the bench press but you're just going up. And the way that you take the, the final score is that um, you have to, you have to get it within six repetitions for it to count as being valid. Once you get over six, they're probably too fatigued for it to actually represent their one repetition max. But ideally they would get to, to rep six and you would have, or, or maybe even earlier. And let's say their one repetition max is 200 pounds. We've, on a bench press. We found that out because we got to 200 pounds on rep three and they did it. Then we tried for rep four and with 205 or 210 pounds and they didn't do it. So you take the score that was previously done.
0: Right.
1: Okay. For the vertical jump test or the medicine ball put test, you can do a best of three on a given day. Right. And that's a good way of doing it. Um, and so basically from those from those tests from that kind of a test barrage, you have everything that you probably need to develop a really good strength and conditioning program for an athlete. Um, you gotta start at least a month out if you start within f- four weeks of a camp, it is not enough time to yeah. make any any serious changes yeah. um, if you only have four weeks. Focus on I would suggest just focusing on technique, technique, technique sure. and just sure. rely on that. Figure it out afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, what I kinda want to focus on as of right now is I had a couple things um, that we could kind of take a look at with different types of programs that people can employ. Sure. And and why they might want to pick different types of programs. And Uh, One of the big factors for why you pick different types of programs is the limitations within a schedule, especially for amateur fighters. You don't have the time to hit, you know, four hours a day of dedicated training going from different spot to spot to spot. You have to try and be as efficient as possible. And I think that for uh, a lot of amateurs, what's called a concurrent program is probably the most effective and concurrent programs are, programs where you are doing endurance training on the same day as strength training. And you do run the risk of interference effects like we mentioned earlier, but there are ways to mitigate it. So the interference uh, effect is just to reiterate is that if you are training for central adaptations and peripheral adaptations, you don't want to mix and match central and peripheral adaptations so that they counterbalance each other so that, Uh, You might get, if you do it wrong, you may get no increases in strength and power and just changes in endurance. And if you mitigate it and you do it the right way, then you can get strength and power. You can get strength, power, and endurance all at once. It's not going to be the same amount of strength gains that you would get from a strength only program. Okay. But it's still still quite a bit. Right, yeah. Still quite a bit. So. Um, here are some of the results from the uh, the current literature on concurrent training programs. How oh, are we going to do it on time? Oh, no, no, we're good.
0: I just was double-checking because I do have people coming by at 7.30 for a group cast, but we, it's only 6.50, so we plenty got time. Okay, okay, okay,
1: okay. We'll no, take away.
0: your time. Do, bro, do
1: not, um, this is your time. Do not uh, worry about it. I was six. just making sure it wasn't like 7.25. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> so if you're training for your, your cardiovascular endurance you want to if you're doing central adaptations, you're training at 90 percent or greater of your VO2 max. If you're training for peripheral adaptations, you're training lower than 90 percent of your VO2 max. Long 90 uh, percent and above would be a lot of interval training and sprint training examples, um, or adaptations for strongman activities, or um, some variations of battle rope trainings. Okay, um, those would be. Those would be different types of examples for cardiovascular endurance training. Sleds would be another example, yokes, that kind of stuff. Um, if you're training at less than 90% of your VO2 max, um, long, slow distance training, you'd be looking at, say, tempo runs or fart licks, or uh, there are other types of interval training that do take, that have you work at longer than 90 uh, that heavy work pretty long intervals, sure. and that you're not going at 90% or higher. Were you laughing at the term fartlek? Yeah.
0: <laughs> this is a five-year-old boy of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dude,
1: have you... Uh, no, it you, is a fartlek. A fartlek? I, was, I didn't want to interrupt okay. you. <laughs> uh, a fartlek is actually really... Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's a, a Swedish term that means speed play. Okay. So, F-A-R-T, just like it sounds. <laughs> L-E-K, fartlek, speed play. And it's a... It means speed play? It means speed play. So, and there's so speed and in- it's a, it's can kind of a part, you know, I don't speak oh. Swedish. But, um, <laughs> We're going to say it does. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's say that. What's uh. so it, it's, it's much more fun and it's supposed to be much more fun and playful. The okay. idea is that you're, you give the athlete the freedom to speed up and to slow down based off of the feel that they have going on at that moment. If they feel like they can push a little harder, let them push a little harder and there's a it's not as regimented and scientific as making them do strict interval training, but it does have less risk of overtraining. And there's a um, part of what you want to focus on with picking exercise in general is, is the athlete going to do it? Right. Can you convince them to do the type of work that you need them to do and, you know, stick to it? If someone doesn't want to come in and they get depressed looking at their training program and they're like, fuck this, this is awful. Right. <laughs> they're never going to do it. They're not going to do it, yeah. You, you got to make, so that's part of the battle anyway. Uh, so those are different types of, of um, training at 90% or less. Okay. Um, um, examples of training at greater than 90%, uh, being on a rower or a sprint bike or doing sprints would be like Tabata intervals, um, Zuniga intervals, which is a really... Sounds very, <laughs> Sounds very inappropriate. Sounds very inappropriate. I'm joking. I swear to God, this is a man's name. And it is Z-U-N-I-G, just one A. Okay. Just one G. And I'm pretty sure he is not racist. Or she. I actually don't know the gender. It could be any gender that is available out there in the world nowadays. Um, And then if you're doing your strength training, strength training, you're looking at repetitions that are 6 and below for the maximal strength and power gains. Those are the central adaptations. When you start training at repetitions of 6 and below, roughly 85 to 100% of a max, or in some protocols, over 100% of your max, then those are adaptations that are happening at the brain, the spinal cord, and spinal cord reflexes, and potentially at tendon levels as well. When you're training 8 to 10, 8 to 12, or more, those are adaptations that are happening peripherally to the muscle. Um, So if you see a guy that's super jacked and super yoked, those are peripheral adaptations for the most part. Um, But it, it explains why you see... Athletes in the Olympic Games doing the clean and jerk and the snatch, who are able to snatch 400 pounds up and overhead, even though they weigh 130 pounds. And they're monsters because those are all central adaptations. And you can get that same kind of an adaptation, theoretically, in a striker to transfer that kind of force through their punch or through their kick into the head of their opponent. Uh, which is absolutely terrifying, terrible, terrible. but it's it's possible you can do that. You can do that kind of training. Um, and what you want to generally structure a concurrent program to look like is that if you really want to focus on the endurance aspect, you would do cardiovascular training before strength training. If you want to focus on the strength and the power, you do strength power training first, cardiovascular endurance training second. And then if you're going to do cardiovascular endurance training, if you pass the 20-minute mark, that's when we start seeing decrements in the perform, in the power and strength gains. So let's say you have an hour to do a strength and conditioning program. You would do the maybe five minutes at the beginning for a warm-up, 35 minutes for the strength training, and 15 to 20 minutes for your cardio training. Once you start going over 20 minutes, it's going to blunt the effects of that strength training more and more and more and more. Uh, we don't know as much if you split it up in the same day, right? right. So if you did strength in the morning, cardio in the afternoon, right. those tests are harder to run. Oh. One thing that we do know is that if you take the same strength training program, you split it up so that you do two a days, and you even if it's the exact same workout program you do an hour in the afternoon, Versus 30 minutes in the morning, 30 minutes in the afternoon. If you split the day up and do the exact same program, you will see greater strength gains. And so there's all uh, there's some discrepancy in the research, lit, or at least that I haven't seen any new publications recently. <laughs> um, the minimum amount of time that you're going to see improvements in strength and power from resistance and weight training is two times a week. Okay. Um, it is unnecessary... And probably detrimental to train more than five times a week. Yeah. Um, there are some surveys that where people have answered that they'll tr- weight train seven times a week, and that's that's overtraining for sure. It's def- you at least need two days of not doing resistance training. Right. And one of the things that I think is very important is to track the total volume that someone is doing in their workout programs. Um, and volume would be the weight times the sets times the reps. And that's total volume, Right. and uh, depending on the program that you're looking at, you're either going to try and just increase the volume consistently over time. So that's more weight, more sets, more reps. So you might start off doing sets, three sets, and then four sets, and then four, five sets, and then six sets. Or you, a German volume chain. Of <laughs> that's an example of, of one of those kind of programs. But by tracking the volume, it it, it takes no extra time or uh, resources to just track the volume that you're having an athlete train with. You don't need any sort of special devices, unlike these um, the heart rate variability devices, sure. which can cost uh, yeah, quite a bit of money. Very... So there's, uh, there's all these devices out there for measuring um, uh, whether people are recovered or not that I think are outside the price range of most people that are, you know, amateur athletes and probably even a lot of professional athletes when they can just be diligent about just tracking their volume and making sure that they're not, um, staying that uh, within a prescribed program and then just testing themselves with the easy test like the vertical jump test every day. Right. And you don't have to spend thousands of dollars or think that you can't train like a pro athlete without doing all that stuff. Other kinds of programs that athletes might want to take a look at would be complex programs. A complex program is one where you're going to be combining strength, traditional strength exercises with traditional power exercises. So you would do, for instance, a set of deadlifts, and then you would go and do a set of clean and jerks and with about a minute, two minutes of rest in between, and you'd go back and forth between the two ex- the two exercises, and that would be the way that the whole program is structured. The advantages of this program is that it's a it's a program that's focusing a lot on power and it doesn't it's not going to get you as much power as a power only program that's full of just olympic lifts or their variations and plyometrics but it will get you more muscle mass than a program that is just power only and so a complex program you would see more muscle mass so if you're trying to go up in weight sure. or if you're small for your weight class This would be a good one to to bulk up up and try to get more muscle mass. Unlike say just a straight bodybuilding program or a powerlifting program, where you want to get you want to also get faster. Um, Compound programs are really good for guys and gals that are really short on time. So a compound program is where you're putting the, the exercises together so that you're doing, for instance, a big push and then a big pull. So like a bench press and then a bench pull or a pull up. And then a dip. And so you're going back and forth. and push, we'll, pull, push, pull. push, pull, push, pull. Or you can do the same thing with the lower body. Sure. Um, and with the compound programs, what we see is that... Like a squat and an RDL. is that what you're trying Yep, to do that? squats and RDLs sure. would be another example. And so what we see in those kind of programs, if I take what's called an EMG reading of you during that, that session, uh, EMG is where I place a bunch of electrodes and it records the electrical signals from the muscle... What I see is that I can take a standard strength exercise and maybe I'll have you do, let's say I have you do three sets of bench press and I record that, um, and I record that with that EMG, I should see roughly the same amount of electricity each time for each of the three sets. If I do a compound program, I should see greater increases in that power output. From the muscles going from a pulling exercise to a pushing exercise and the reason why that you would see that change is that um, you're you're making some short-term adjustments in the in the brain and the spinal cord and you essentially are reducing the internal resistance to the given exercise so think about it like this um, uh, every time that you Do a bicep curl. It's not just the weight of the dumbbell that's moving up and down. It's also the fact that your brain is constantly sending electrical signals to your tricep. It never stops. It's always going to be there. It's just a matter of how much electrical signal is going to be there. Mm -hmm. And so if you turn off that electrical signal to the tricep by doing a cable pull-down exercise first, you should see you turn it off for a little bit of time, and then it allows the bicep, to then lift more weight via the dumbbell when you're doing the curl. And there's a great amount of research that's come out about those. There are also uh, another type of program you might want to look at would be linear periodization. A linear a linearly periodized program is one where you start with very high volume and then and a very low intensity. And then you transition your way to doing very high intensity and very low volume. So a classic example might be that you would do sets of 20 at the very beginning with 50% of your squat. And then as you get further and further down the program, you drop from 20 repetitions to 18, to 14, 12, 10, 8. And as you get lower and lower and lower, you're lifting heavier and heavier (laughs) weights. And the intensity gets higher and higher, and the rest periods get longer and longer, and what you're doing is you're front-loading the program for those peripheral adaptations. Sure. And then as you get closer and closer to the end of the program, it's kind of like you're doing a taper. Yeah. And then you're then going to end the program having built up this peripheral base with all these cardiovascular adaptations and strength adaptations in the muscle. And now you're trying to teach that brain to fire as powerfully as possible at the very end. And a variation of the linear program is something called an undulating periodized program, where in the same week, you would have, say, a Monday, a Wednesday, and a Friday, where it would be very high volume on Monday, medium volume on Wednesday, and then very low volume on Friday. So it would be like Monday is 20 repetitions, Wednesday is 12, and then Friday is 6. And you can progress those kind of programs as well, where, say, your Monday is going to go 20, 18, 16, 14, uh, and then it's going to go 12, 10, 8, and then it would go 6, 4, 3, 2, for instance. And then you're okay. working your way up as well. So the whole program can move kind of linearly too. And so those are different types of programs, and they each have their pros and cons based on the needs of the athlete and the strategy that they really need to focus on. That's awesome.
0: So, like, That's awesome, So
1: like the complex program... You want it to, for someone that's got to bulk up and get larger and and faster. The compound program. Um, maybe you're working on just the max strength, and you've sure. already built up that cardio base. The linear periodization program is kind of like taking someone. It works really well if you're taking someone that needs to increase their VO2 max, right. And then uh, and then progress. Like we know that their VO2 max needs to be worked on first. Like sure. it's low, we need to bring it up. And then we can start working on strength. Undulating would be, would, um, if you have kind of like, a, I think works really well with well-rounded people. So, like, if they're not particularly good at any one spot. They're not bad. At one they're of not one particularly of bad at any one of those measurements. You can You can work on raising all of them up relatively gradually at the same time okay. safely. The concurrent programs are for the people that have really challenging schedules. And who really, really need to focus on the, uh, the endurance primarily without sacrificing their strength. Sure. And then um, that's not even getting into the, the challenge of exercise, what exercises you're doing and how do you progress an exercise as an athlete. So as an athlete, there are a bunch of different ways that you might want to progress the exercises that you're selecting depending on your needs and your mobility. So, for instance, you might go from doing two-limb exercises like a barbell squat to a one-limb exercise like a Bulgarian split squat or a pistol squat. You might want to do stable surfaces to unstable surfaces um, and so that you're focusing on the smaller muscles that are stabilizing your hip, your knee, your ankle, uh, or your spinal cord. So you might start off doing uh, squats on flat ground, and then you would, progress it to doing it on foam pads and then progress it to doing it on BOSU balls. Um, and you might go from machines to doing free weights. And that would be one for people that would be considered novices. Sure. Or people that really just <clears throat> want to focus on the strength first and then do the injury prevention sort of stuff after. Good. And one thing that I want to kind of focus in on for a lot of people is that on the research side, um, it doesn't look like... Circuits work well for MMA training. They're very popular. A lot of people will do them. Sure, yeah. I was going to say that seems to be one of the most
0: prevalent types of training. Yeah. And <laughs> do, you, do you think that might just be because
1: most of them are done in group settings? It's probably because a lot of them are done in group settings. And it's probably because, at least in the research literature, that there's, um, it's pretty consistent what kind of circuits are being done. So, like, it's usually, like, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and then you go to the next exercise, and you're trying to get as many reps as, as possible in there. And so, you're doing things like you're doing a bicep curl, and then you're doing a kettlebell squat, and then you're getting up and you're doing an overhead press. Sure. So, it's, it's one of those things where there isn't a planned progression. You don't know, going into a circuit, how many repetitions you're going to be doing, or how much weight you're going to be moving. Sure. Or, um... Or anything like that. So that could be part of it. And so there's other kind of protocols like high-intensity interval circuit training protocols that are being starting to get done in this one research lab in Italy. But they haven't done it with athletes yet. They've only done it with general population people. So I don't know if it would work. Right. Um, And they do a lot of the publishing on that kind of training. And what, what we do know is that In the research that's been done comparing periodized programs to circuit training, circuit training loses just about every time. Like, the athletes just don't perform as well on the tests afterwards, and that's including things like body composition. It's just periodized programs just seem to compete better across the board than the circuit training. And it's probably better for fatigue management as well because you're able to track variables much easier than you can in circuit training. Um, So if you're doing... If you're not doing circuits, you want to do a a regular workout uh, that's along these kind of program lines. You want to make sure that you're going to do a warm-up first. You're going to do your power exercises second. You're going to do multi-joint exercises followed by single joints. And then always, always, always do a cool-down. And if you're doing cool-down stretches, you have to hold the stretch for a minimum of 30 seconds. Otherwise, it doesn't have a long-term effect. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. So, it's you might as, if it's 15 seconds, you might as well have not done it. <laughs> Unless you're doing other things like dynamic stretches in between right. the sets. So, there's ways to manipulate as well, those kind of different programs. Other things that I want to just quickly mention is don'ts. Um, don't overtrain. Listen to your body, listen to the test data that you take every day. Try not to mix and match, right? So, uh, uh, uh one thing that I think is pr- is quite, quite common is that people will mix and match different exercise modalities even on the same day. Like, oh, my buddy's going to do a bodybuilding workout right now. I'm going to do it with him and, and not do the program that I want, to, that I should be doing right now. That I've been sticking with. That, that I've that been long sticking long. with. You've got to stick to the programs once you've done them. Otherwise, you risk those interference effects. Um, don't do exercises that set you up for injury. Examples include certain variations of upright rows, the particularly where you hold your hands together on a barbell. It sets you up much more for impingement syndrome. Sure. Um, You, a lot of people should not be doing behind the the neck overhead presses because they don't have the shoulder mobility to do it. A lot of athletes are attempting to do clean and jerks and snatches that don't have the mobility for it either, and those are. There are much, much safer alternatives that have way lower injury risks. Just even using a landmine, uh, which is the barbell that sticks into the ground. And then you can do presses and jerks and cleans with yeah, that. Those are great. Way, 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 way safer. Um, um, exercises beyond your ability. You know, that would be an example of that. Um, don't neglect tapering. It takes roughly 10 to 14 days for a good taper. And lastly, don't train like a bodybuilder. Bodybuilders are really good at looking good, but they are not athletes in the same way that you need to train to be an athlete. So they focus on single joint activities over and over and over again, and that is not what you need to be doing. And then lastly, there uh, I wanted to circle back quickly to that tor- core stiffness thing. Um, there's growing evidence that you don't want to be doing uh repeated abdominal crunching activities because there's a higher risk that you might be setting yourself up for disc injuries. Instead, you want to focus on exercises that are going to allow you to increase the core stiffness isometrically. So examples would be like, um, planks are an example that everybody would know of. Sure. And then there are, are variations that you can do while standing, kneeling, things like payoff presses um, where you could be kneeling with a uh, kneeling next to a band or to a cable. And what you're going to do is you're going to take that cable and you would press it up and overhead so that the cable is the machine, machine out and up, and up or straight up. So there's different variations. So you could, let's say you have the, the cable ropes. They're at your shoulders. You're facing the machine and you just press straight up. That's an interior payoff press. Mm-hmm. I know. I'm sorry, everybody that's just listening. And the machine is trying to pull you forward. Sure. So right. you're facing away from it. Uh, that would be a posterior okay. nail off press. So if you're facing towards it, it's trying to pull you forward into the machine. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, and that that would be an example of where you are using your abdo your abdominals to resist those forces that are right. acting on the spine, and you're increasing the stiffness without uh, without doing any sort of a crunching activity. Okay. Um, so that would be a really good example of ways that you can increase the, tor- the, the stiffness of the muscle without increasing the risk of degenerating um, the discs. Sure. And then uh, one of my personal favorite ones is that if you stand with a, med- a Swiss ball, the, 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 the large ones that are kind of squishy and they're filled with air they got a couple different names. You stand with one foot up against the wall, the other foot's out to the side, you know, you're standing square... You're going to take that ball at arm's width, arm's length, and then at the count of three, you're going to then try to press that ball into the wall as hard as you can and try to pop it. And you're going to hold that for 30 full seconds. And as hard as you press into the wall, the wall is trying to press back as hard into you as it possibly can. So you're trying to create as much possible force in that muscle without any movement, without any risk of degenerating the discs, and it's an incredible way of building up the stiffness of that muscle. Wow. So those are examples of ways that uh, don'ts and then a couple of things that you can mix in instead. All right. That's awesome, man. Avery, I hope um, I'm not over time.
0: Dude, no, not at all. I just want to make sure we got enough time in between so I can edit, and not edit, but post your shit before the next people come in. Oh, okay. Arthur, um, thank you so much, man. I'm going to have to listen to this again because I'm too stupid to retain this, but this, I learned a lot,
1: man. I'm hey, glad. I'd be happy to send you some info after. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that, man. Uh, um, I'll get you my... I, or I gave you my phone number actually. Oh. Yeah,
0: but uh, is there anything else?
1: Can you do your plugs for social media sure, sure. stuff? Sure, I'm not the most active on social media, but, but you do have I, a good
0: social media page. I thank you. I was checking you. your stuff out, looking for pictures uh, for the for the bio and everything for the podcast. And, cool. You uh, had a good good social media. Man. I got to post
1: more frequently on Instagram. Um, I am on there as Thunderous Profit. That's the best Twitter name. C-H-U-N-D-R-O-U-S-P-R-O-P-H-E-T, which I got from the Wu-Tang Clan Clan name (laughs) generator, and I am never going to be ashamed of that. On on Facebook, I have a professional page. It's just Arthur Joseph D'Amato, and then it's got all of my certifications after. If you type that name in, you'll find me. And, you know, I'm... I do clinics. I just came from a clinic teaching Olympic weightlifting over at the Adventure Rock in Brookfield. I give talks at uh, risk management symposiums and stuff like that. So if there's anyone that's a coach that would like to reach out and have me come in and maybe do oh, yeah. testing or do clinics for um, for their athletes, I'm more than happy to help. If there's Honestly, athletes, a couple
0: people in the, yeah. in your neck of the woods, but. If you ever want to calm down, man, I could probably get you the job down here. So Sweet. if you ever, if you ever want to change a pace, but not sure. to
1: take you away from your location, but sure. <laughs> they might be listening. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> 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 I, I was saying that, so I should shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if anybody wants to reach out, I'm very. I want to try putting together a team of MMA fighters up in the Fox Valley area, and so I would be happy to, you know, do discounts for people that would be interested in do in partaking in something like oh, that because yeah. i I want to see that sport grow Um, It's it's my favorite sport to watch Yeah Uh, Bar none For sure Uh, Did you check
0: out Junior Dos Santos' fight this weekend? Where's that tied to to guy? That was insane. I love Junior.
1: Actually, I didn't because I was, I was, preparing, I was preparing for tomorrow. For the for the day. Day, I, mean. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta make. I was doing all this research beforehand, and then I was like, you know, I haven't been listening to his podcast nearly enough. I gotta sit down. And I listened to like three, four oh, episodes okay. in a well, row. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well,
0: yeah, it's uh, yeah, Junior does not just beat the shit, or not beat the shit. I, I, I play, saw the but, highlights. Yeah, that tie guy. He's a beast. But Junior is a former champion. You know? Yeah. yeah. That guy's scary. Yeah, I don't know. I remember, he was sponsored by Nike, and Nike just—he really? Yeah, dude, he was sponsored by Nike when he became the champion, and then the second he lost, Nike just bailed on him. And right. I was like, dude, come on,
1: Come me—that must have been a while ago. Yeah, it was.
0: It was, Well, he beat Kane, and then he, he knocked out Kane on the first ever fight in Fox, and mm-hmm. then he beat a couple other people. I think it was Frank Mir, maybe somebody else, and then.
1: Kane beat the brakes off of him in the rematch, and uh, Nike's like, see ya! (laughs) Did you see, have have you noticed the thing that Kane has apparently started doing with the Olympics YouTube channel? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I stumbled across it last night. I've seen at least one video of him where he's apparently going around the world and uh, making short 10-minute videos of different wrestling styles around the world. So, Velazquez? Kim Kane Velasquez, yeah. What so I, I saw him do um, Senegalese wrestling last night. So it's about 10 minutes. And apparently... Is it on YouTube? It's on YouTube. Dude, I'm doing this tonight. The, the Senegalese wrestling, um, I guess, scene. Scene is the right way to put it. It's huge. Yeah. It's apparently become the biggest sport. Is like is their folk style of wrestling. And, you know, people storm. the cr- People storm. Like, the, the playing field, it's interesting because they don't have any sort of walls or cage. They play on sand. They have kind of like a sumo outfit that you can yeah. use, and, that you can grab, unlike shorts. Um, they do allow some striking, but it's kind of like combat jiu-jitsu, where sure. it's, like it is limited. Foot. Yeah, no one's punching. No, no one's kicking or kneeing or elbowing, but they do throw some strikes. And... It's got this weird spiritual, it's got this weird religious element to it where they had a shaman. He was interviewing a shaman that was like fixing a hex wow. on the wrestlers so that he wouldn't get taken down. I mean, it was. Dude, that's it's awesome! Really good to check TV. It out. I had and no idea he was doing that. I was really surprised at how good Kane is of a, of a host. Yeah, I was going to say he's like
0: silent killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: and he's very personable when he's uh, when he's been working with the Olympics. And I think that there's more than one video of him doing it. Dude, yeah. I'm going to take that out. It man. immediately started popping up more. In Did my you TV. send me a link of, for that? Yeah, like love the that podcast? Yeah, because then? Yeah. Uh, uh, then I'll just go right on it after I get done.
0: Cool, uh, that's awesome.
1: Man. Is there anything else that? Um, Maybe we cut short, or that you wanted to bring up that I could quickly do a um, three three minutes um, I mean, explanation of I or follow up on.
0: That uh, I guess uh, what's yeah what this is a good one. We got a lot. We got very technical today with it, which sure. is a hu- obviously a huge part of training. But what helps you? Uh, another big part of training is relationship building and like helping. Build like uh, build build. Something. Just <laughs> dropped an ice cube on my couch. <laughs> yep. But um, he like what's it like? Relationship building is a huge part of personal training and strength yep. conditioning. Like you, you gotta be. These people have to be able to trust you with their like well being. What's like uh, what's one of the things that made you really get into, you know, relationship building with these, or helps you do this relationship building,
1: relate to people. I think it's a, I, I use this when I was doing wilderness guiding and outdoor education is that people like to learn w- while they're doing stuff. Um, and so being ready and being able to have the answers and telling them why we're about to do something before they have to ask was probably a really big thing. So, yeah. um, it wasn't, hey, go do, it. it's never been the case where I say, we're going to do 10 sets, and we're going to have 60 seconds of rest, and then I just make them do it. It's all, um, and then they have to ask me, why are we doing this particular program? It's always been the case where I tell them, we're going to try this program for these reasons. And okay. so it's building a level of confidence and trust because they can go, They they've got the words from me, and they can go and fact-check me if they really feel like it. And then if they if they don't like the program, they can tell me which part about the program they don't like. So I might do something really strange. Not necessarily strange, but something they've never done, like a loaded stretch protocol. Sure. Uh, or we'll do cluster sets, which I wish we had enough time that we, I could get into all the deep well, detail, de- 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 stuff like that. Myself. But, <clears> like... And I can tell them, like, you know, we're doing cluster sets, we're doing compounds, we're doing, um, complexes, we're doing all of this different stuff. And, uh, and they can go, I fucking hated that linear undulating program. It drove me nuts. And I can say, all right, you don't like it? We don't have to do it. There are other research, there are other researched and verified programs that work as well, if not better. And we can use that program. Or they can tell me, you know, I I like to work on the the balance aspect that we're we've been focusing on, but I hate this particular exercise. Um, maybe because it hurts, maybe because I don't feel very confident with it, it. It could be any number of reasons. And the the second that I get that feedback, I can make an adjustment. And I and I ask for the that feedback and adjustment. And then one thing that I do that's just kind of fun is I do trivia. Okay. And. Uh, Old people love trivia. Yeah, they do. <laughs> like, uh, here, here's one for your listeners. Um, what is the deepest river in the world? Hmm. Not the Nile, right? It's Not the Nile. What is it? Uh, well, if I tell oh, them, oh, they're, right. yeah, then yeah, they're yeah. not going to go out and search for it themselves. Oh, sure. But okay. here, Here's Where's for reference. I'll give them the depth, and I'll give them one clue. So the deepest river in the world is roughly 730 feet, which is only fifty feet shallower than Lake Michigan, which is right outside of our house here, this house here, and it is. Uh, so the the other trivia piece is, oh, sorry, the other clue for the trivia is um, this river is running through a country that was a former Belgian colony. So that's the clue. I'll give you those two clues, and that'll be enough. Awesome. Well, like thank you so much, brother. Hey, thank, thank you, you for having me. Come yeah, on, I really you. enjoyed it. Yeah, dude, me too. It's great. It's great to see you again, man. It's yeah. great to see you. Yeah, next time I come down to Milwaukee, I'm gonna hit you up. Yeah, absolutely. I, got, I still have a bunch of friends, and you know, if you haven't hit up that Axe MKE yet, oh yeah, 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 yeah I want to check that place out. This is
0: fucking dope, dude. We'll have to check that out. Let's Arthur Diamato, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. That was Arthur Diamato. That guy is fucking awesome. That, I uh, I learned a lot, but I am. Very stupid, so I'm going to have to listen to that one again to retain the information given to me. Uh, very smart guy. That was awesome. This is Milwaukee Mayhem. Thank you for listening. We shall be back.